This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with acclaimed producer, Leo Severino. President of Metanoia Films, Leo has made movies such as the award-winning film, Bella, Little Boy, Sound of Freedom, starring actor Jim Caviezel, as well as Kevin James' latest Netflix comedy special, Irregardless, and his latest film, Cabrini. In this episode, Deacon Charlie and Leo discuss Christian media and how new filmmakers are elevating artistry and storyline while expressing truths of the faith and the beauty of the creative process. They break open Cabrini, its immersive nature, how they portrayed this first American citizen saint, and what the critics are saying. Son of Colombian immigrants, like Deacon Charlie, Leo shares his background, embarking on the creative journey and how his team of immigrants add to the reality of his films. Historically, the Catholic Church has been the heart and the bedrock of so much amazing art. You know, the Michelangelo's and the Bernini's and the Raphael's and whatnot. And, you know, our hope and our mission was to try to make art at the highest level because, you know, that's the best way to get the truth and so much of what is good across is by encapsulating it in the beautiful. This is Living the Call. Leo Severino, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Deacon. Appreciate you. Thank you for all your good work. Oh, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. And I got to tell you, having just finished watching Cabrini, by the way, that you're kind of throwing my um, one of my perennial uh, media arguments into a little bit of a tailspin because those who listen to this show and anybody who knows me and knows my background, and we have similar backgrounds, we'll get into that in a second, but know that I'm always begrudging the state of broadly Christian media and only occasionally saying, you know, with this notable exception or that notable exception. But what you and um, Eduardo and the team at Angel, and I know you have your own kind of production company, et cetera, but what this sort of new crop of producer, director, creator, maker has been doing in the Catholic space is, is beginning to make it more difficult for me to say that as a, as a consistent rule that sort of Christian media is, is, you know, comparatively pretty awful because what you've done with this Cabrini movie is really, really special. And so I'm, I'm happy to lose an argument by the way, in, in that regard, if it means that there's going to be good, uh, good content made. So congrats at least on that. Well, thank you so much, uh, Deacon. It, it means a ton. And, you know, I share the sentiment. It's tough because we don't want to cast aspersions on people. People are trying their best and to get any piece of media, as you know, with even this podcast done is, is often a miracle. You know, it takes so much and, you know, there's, there's plenty of good intentions, but historically the Catholic church has been the, the place of the, 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 the heart and the bedrock of so much amazing art, you know, the Michelangelo's and the Bernini's and the Raphael's and whatnot. And, um, you know, our hope and our mission was to try to make art at the highest level because, you know, that's the best way to get the, the, the truth and, 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 and so much of what is good across is by, by encapsulating it in the beautiful. So that's been our mission since, since we started uh, our, our, our little company. And I know that's Angel's mission as well, an incredible distribution partner. So I'm glad that you at least uh, think that we've uh, s- at least somehow achieved this a little bit in, in our film on Cabrini. Well, it, it, you, you certainly have, and we can get into specifically what at least I mean from having now, uh, you know, viewed the film, but I got to tell you that it, it hasn't been without its share of conversation and maybe even in some cases, some, you know, controversy, depending on how much time you spend on X, formerly known as Twitter, and I spend a fair amount, but, you know, there, there's th- this whole question about the creative process, and I'm interested in your perspective on this. This whole question of the, of the creative process, I've found, at least in my conversations with Catholics, people of faith, especially people who have a philanthropic interest in putting their money to work against projects that are helpful to the gospel in the world. The the conversation for me historically has gone something like this, which is the, the more creative the project is, sometimes the greater reluctance the, you know, individual philanthropists or influencers or people who are, you know, who, who are interested in putting their means, their material means to work to support the church, the more sort of reticent they sometimes get. Now, I don't know if that's based on their kind of personal experience, having funded projects and them not having worked out, but there seems to be this sort of initial resistance against putting, you know, money to work in creative areas when the most powerful thing 
in my mind, as a media guy, is story. Like, that's the, and to your point, where we've won for centuries, like in telling stories through art. And so I find it kind of baffling in some cases, this resistance against creative approaches to things. And that's where some, and I'll, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on it, but some of the commentary on this film, you know, you've had people very much looking forward to it and other people saying, oh, well, it's not an exact, you know, duplicate of Cabrini's exact life. Therefore, we have to be suspicious of it. What do you make of this dynamic? Like, what do you make of this? There's a lot there in what you just said, Deacon, and I agree with so much of it. Um, it's not all of it. Uh, the first part is, is, is yes, there's been a, I don't know, somehow we kind of gave up art as a means of expressing beauty, uh, expressing the truth of the faith and expressing so much and inspiring so much goodness. Um, it dates back even further. I, I, our Lord himself used parables as his main means of teaching, which is, as you said, stories. Uh, you know, they, they, they have a way to touch the heart and open up people's uh, preconceived notions and, and put them in a, in a contemplative space so that they can then be inspired to something true or good or beautiful. Um, and that's why I, I started this uh, production company with Eduardo Alejandro, who you mentioned, our, our director and writer, Alejandro Monteverde, our other producer, my producing partner, Eduardo Verastegui, was because we thought, okay, is there a space for art at the highest level um, that also isn't going to be offensive to our faith and our morals? And, you know, our first little venture, that was Bella, our first film, yep. Bella. I don't know if you saw Bella. Oh, yes, I did. But, um, you know, at the time. Which you wrote, by the way. Yes, but with Alejandro, our, our, our director. But, yeah, thank you. But um, that was an attempt to try to use the, I remember there was, a, there was a film at the time, Lost in Translation, which was a big inspiration for us because it won a lot of sure. critical acclaim to make it a very character-driven kind of a day-in-the-life sort of uh, story. And it wound up winning the Toronto Film Festival, the Audience Award. And we were just blown away with that. Okay, there's a model here, right? And it actually did well in the box office, sufficient to carry its budget and, and whatnot. And we thought, okay, we're in business. And then it took us years to do our next film, right? Which was Little Boy. Because exactly right, there's a reticence. There's a, there's a um, I don't know, a built-in, in, in this culture, in this generation, in the people of means, there's, a, there's kind of a built-in... Um, disconnect or, or, or uh, disinclination from being a patron of the arts, even if there's a, po- a possibility for profitability. And it wasn't until our last film, Sound of Freedom, where finally we're kind of proving the model. And now um, hopefully these doors are, are opening up a bit. Um, so, uh, you know, listen, uh, my hope is that there's hundreds, if not thousands of other filmmakers and producers and writers that are, that are, that are inspired to kind of follow the path that, we're, that we've been somewhat blazing, uh, which we shouldn't have to be. I mean, there used to be the Catholic Decency League back in the days. There wasn't a I film remember. that yeah. wasn't, that, you know, film couldn't be made that, that didn't pass certain standards of both, of both art and ethics, you know? Well, it's funny because um, I had Jonathan Rumi on this show a while back. And even now with The Chosen, you know, it's in, and it's in its th- theatrical window for the fourth season. There's all of this noise about, you know, about the series. Uh, there's a tremendous amount, 90% plus, which is, overwhelmingly supportive and glowing. But there's this this sort of like 10% of very noisy detractors, right, who are, you know, saying that it's a false Christ and like all this other stuff. And and one of the things I think to myself is like, to your point, we would want 10,000 of these things. It's not just about me creating a movie that people are going to watch and great, you know, I've now sort of lifted my profile somehow. It's about really wanting to evangelize and spread the gospel. And so my response to folks like that is like, are you kidding me? It's like, there's so many things, there's so much slop out there, you know, um, secularly and frankly, even in Christian media, for you to sort of pick on these things that have finally kind of broken the membrane, kind of broken through, and who are bringing people, maybe for the first time ever, an opportunity to encounter the person of Jesus or someone who reflects him like Mother Cabrini does in your film, is to me, like, baffling. It's baffling that we would waste energy on this. We should be wanting 10,000 more of these and accepting of the small details that perhaps artistically we might disagree with. And so it fascinates me how people think that way. Well, and you're right. That was the second part of your question that I was remiss to answer and I apologize. But yes, uh, fortunately with with our film of Cabrita, we screened it already, you know, dozens, if not many more times. 
we haven't really faced this. Um, you know, there's definitely not 10%, maybe less than 1% are like, I happen to know a little obscure fact about Mother Cabrini that's not in <laughs> that the you film. Didn't mention. <laughs> right. But for the most part, I think we've been really true to the story. Our executive producer, uh, Eustace Wolfington, has a great devotion to her, and he was very protective of, let's make sure we get her as she was, no more, no less, and that should be sufficient. And so what he had us do was, I, I was reluctant to make this film, by the way. He called me and he said, I, I, I have this film I want to make. And we already had things in development. And I was trying to steer him to this other stuff. He said, no, I need to make a film about Mother Cabrini. She's the first American saint. And I was like, first, I thought that was St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Yeah. Like, no, that was the first naturally born American That's saint. Right. The first American citizen saint is Mother Cabrini. And then he had me read a book on her life. And when I saw this incredible underdog story, the adversity that she overcame and what she built and how she affected millions of people, inspired millions, no one knows her name. I thought, man, we should definitely do something. So we, we hired our writer who also did Sound of Freedom with us. He's writing our next film with us. And he, Eustace had him read 26 books on Mother Cabrini's life. Had wow. him go to her orphanage or to her, uh, her uh, convent in Cadonio, where, where the order was founded. Read all the historians. Go to the Vatican. Read all the archives. Read her case of canonization. Come to the U.S. Go to all of her shrines. At the end of which she said, now you're ready to write this script. So I think we've, I mean, you have to encapsulate years of, of, of someone's life into a couple of hours, but I think we've been true to her story. And uh, yes, maybe one out of a, I don't know, a few hundred people says, I wish she was, you know, we saw her praying the rosary more or something like that. And I'm like, you know what? I wish so too. But as you know, when you're making a film, by the way, there is all kinds of prayer in the film and she's quotes the scriptures and God's all over the place and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, you're right. I wish you could say, hey, can't you appreciate what we were able to do? We're trying to make a film here that reaches a broad audience. And so you can't just interrupt the film to have a full rosary. As much as we would want to, that might, one, turn people off. It doesn't drive the story. It doesn't drive the plot. And even then, someone's going to complain. I promise you that the rosary beads were, you know, made of uh, the improper wood or something like that. You know I mean? <laughs> well, even more important than praying the scriptures, in a sense, is what you showed her living the scriptures. Like living the gospel, right? This sort of real integrated bodily way of just being a Christian and a religious out in the world in a way that we so seldom understand today. I mean, that's where the movie really triumphs. Look, I think um, some of the detraction, and I, to your point, it is tiny. But, I, but it, you know, I, when I talk to creators and makers and people who are behind this stuff, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the perspectives. So some of the... The you know the the very small um, things that I've seen on Twitter. I'll read you one just as an example. Looks like Cabrini was made into a feminist cause. Mm. So unfortunate. Could have been a great movie. Mm. By the way, it is a great movie. But how would you respond to that person who, by the way, probably has never seen the movie? That's right. A hundred percent, they haven't seen the movie because if they saw the movie, they wouldn't think that in the slightest. Um, in fact, it's quite the opposite. In as much as uh, she's so counter the current notion of feminism, and she displays a true femininity and uses that. And this is throughout all of her writings. Um, you know, the same objections they had to her kind of indomitable will, Mother Teresa faced as well, as, and no one would consider her an anti, you know, or a feminist figure. So it's, it's just silly, it's absurd. And what they're doing is they're confusing, and it's understandable at some level. Some of the marketing that's out there is kind of, we're, we're, we're releasing an International Women's Day, which is March 8th, and some of the marketing is skewed towards kind of the woman audience, which is what you need to do in order to get people to get into the theater. I would love for a large swath of actual hardcore feminists uh, 100%. To, come, to come see this film 200%. Uh, so yeah. that we can expose them to, you know, maybe a, a, a view of femininity that isn't in their, in their purview. Uh, so, no, that's that's just a silly comment. You, you need to see the film and then you can gauge it. And I promise you, as you know, Deacon, having seen the film, that it's, it's quite the opposite of that. Without a shadow of a doubt. Um, one final point on this. I really want to kind of go through the film and I want to, you know, get your perspective on, on a couple of things. We're not going to spoil anything, but I just want to give you my sort of perspective on some of the things that 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 I found really, really compelling about it. But um, one thing that you said, which I think is like super key 
is is the idea of who do we want seeing this film? Now, presumably, you as a producer want everybody to see this movie, of course, like everybody to see it. But like in the in 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 the areas of emphasis, and I'll ask you, I'll tell you what my perspective is. I 100% agree with you that if we had every woman who's going to the women's march and marching for what they believe their view of feminism feminism is to see this movie and perhaps be shaped or moved by this vision of true feminine genius, that's a major W. That's a major win, right, to me. So, like, when I hear, when I read comments like that, I'm going, what do you think, like, the gospel is about, right? It's the good news for everyone, particularly the sinner, particularly the sick, the vulnerable, the person who needs the divine physician, like we should want those folks to find a way to go see something, right? If you made this movie two hours of praying the rosary, we're probably not going to reach those people, right? We're probably not going to have them come into the theater. Yeah. So, I, I mean, is that along the lines of, of, of how you're thinking of this as, as a producer? Absolutely. hundred percent. You know, we try to make a film every one of our films for everybody. That's the idea is to make it for everybody. Why? Because like you said, the gospel is universal. Our Lord's parables are universal, right? His wisdom is universal. The, the, the wisdom of the saints is universal. It's meant for everyone. It's supposed to be an appeal to all people, not just for one particular crowd. Uh, and, and the best way to do that is to stick to the things in story elements that work that speak this universal language. Now we don't shy away from her faith. It was an integral part of her life. She's, She's a nun and she's walking around in a habit the entire time with a big cross around her neck. And there's, you know, statues and whatnot. And there's a prayer in Latin in the middle of the film. I mean, it's, 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 there's, it's, it's all over the place. But you have to do it in such a way that it feels genuine and authentic. And it drives either the character arc or the plot of the story. Because if it doesn't do that, then it just can come across as, as preachy or just bad filmmaking or bad art. And, you know, that's not helping anybody. Mm. And it's definitely not bad art. Look, I, I love the way, first of all, the movie is stunning to see. And I pay attention to cinematography, to lighting. I, my background, just so you know, is when I went to school to actually make movies and I ended up kind of like you on the business side of the media world and never got a chance to really realize my kind of creative dreams. Although I've been involved in a number of different projects and that as a kind of more business guy, but I pay attention to these details. I pay attention to lighting, to, to atmosphere, to camera movement, to, uh, you know, uh, angles, all of these different things. And the movie is, first of all, beautifully shot. It is arresting to the eyes. Mm. And that is really important because, I mean, at the end of the day, especially for a theatrical experience, you want to take advantage of the environment that is now given to us in most major theaters with beautiful sound and all this other stuff. The music is also very, very compelling. So it's beautifully shot. It's beautifully acted. You know, specifically, um, Christiana Delano, who plays who plays Cabrini, I thought did a masterful, masterful job. But you've got John Lithgow's in it. David Morse is in it. Giancarlo Giannini. You've got like this great cast of people who really kind of carry forward the story. So the acting is really great. And then thematically... You've got hope and belonging and betrayal and obedience and struggle and sacrifice and love and like all of these just amazing things. Frankly, on one of them, you could probably make a movie and you've got like 12 of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So you've got all of this sort of ebb and flow and and and, it, and, and the movie comes together in a way that I, I think achieves what you set out to do, which is, yes, an introduction to this great woman, but also this sort of this this hope that we all can play a role in this kind of salvific plan that God has in our own way. Some are big, some are small, some start small end big, you know what I'm saying? But like, I felt very inspired to like leave my watching of it and go like, yeah, damn it. We got to go do this thing. Mm. And, and that's, I presume good. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, that's the, that's the hope because that was our, that was our goal. That was our intention. Listen, Deacon, thank you so much for, for, for seeing and appreciating what we're trying to do here. But, you know, the cinematography, our cinematographer, Gorka, Gomez. Andrew, Gorka. He yeah. also, he Sorry, did, I didn't mention him. Not at all. He also did uh, Sound of Freedom. He's doing our next film that we're, we're in prep on now. Uh, and Alejandro, our director, it's just they're visionary guys. They're incredibly high-level artists. And uh, on, in this particular film, they, they choreographed every single scene. They really wanted to make it not a motion picture, but a motion painting. So that every people say it, and we've heard it before, every frame of painting sort of thing. Yep. I think this is one where they kind of achieved that, where every 
single composed frame was was intentional and it was all meant to have a very particular style that they were going after um that was an immersive experience for the audience they really wanted to to, to, to i'll give a little bit behind baseball sort of situation but you might appreciate this right there wasn't a lot of coverage in this film i don't know if you noticed that coverage for the audience who's listening is is different camera angles like you might go wide and and shoot shoot one scene just with a wide angle and then shoot the same scene with a couple of different close-ups so that you can edit from the wide to establish it. Then you go to the close-up, one person's talking, you go to the other close-up, and that gives you the opportunity to edit. So you have you can take from one take on the close-up and go to another take of the wide and then another take of the close-up and so on and so forth. We didn't do that with this film. It was all a choreography between the actors and the camera because everything needed to be composed in a particular way because there was so much meaning in the subtext. And so that makes it, incredibly difficult to film, but even harder to edit because you don't have a lot of options. So uh, our director, he, he, uh, he uh, compared it to trying to free climb a, a mountain like El Capitan and Yosemite or something without any ropes. Because if, if, you know, if one of these scenes don't, don't work in the edit, then the film doesn't work. You'd have to yeah, go back and reshoot. Wow. That's a great um, analogy. So yeah. everything, every little detail was composed, choreographed. There's a subplex. I don't know if you noticed the use of archways as a as, as a mental call to like this transition of characters or reflections in mirrors as kind of the plight of the immigrant who has a kind of a dual personality that they have to live in the, 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 the you know, heritage, their heritage and their background. And then trying to be an American at the same time, there's kind of this duality. We had images of, of, of little halos around her head so that she was framed as a saint, you know, all these sorts of things were all, were all very much intended. And I appreciate that you were able to for sure. Some of that stuff. Yeah. Deep, deep symbolism too. In particular, I'm thinking that uh, hopefully not a spoiler. I don't think it is, but there's a scene uh, or a shot anyway that, and it repeats as a sort of uh, uh, as a, as a thematic throughout in, in various places of, of, um, of her underwater, you know, recalling an incident from her youth. And she had, uh, Cabrini had tuberculosis as a child. And, you know, I don't know all the history, you know, better than I do, but, there was some incident involving water when she was a young girl and she got sick or almost drowned or something like that. And, um, and there's that scene, that recurring motif throughout this period. And there's one final one where, you know, she's feeling kind of down and dejected and she's getting a talking to by one of, uh, one of her friends uh, who anyway has her own story, which is remarkable. But anyway, one of her friends has given her this eff effectively a pep talk at this sort of lowest moment. And it recalls that motif where she's underwater and she's basically, you know, paralyzed there underwater. And at some moment during this pep talk, which you can hear, this is very, um, uh, very Coppola, right? With the parallel editing where you've got like something happening outside of the scene while you're watching the scene. I love that. But you've got, you, you have her sort of as a girl come to sort of under the water and rise above it at that moment. And then of course the film carries forward that, that, um, that optimism and that encouragement from that pep talk further. But all of that symbolism is, is, is really powerful, right? We kind of like, th those are the images, again, that you pay attention to. And the, the, the point about the kind of footholds on, you know, El Capitan, and if you miss one, you're kind of screwed. You definitely feel that throughout this, this picture. It's very immersive. There was one shot in particular that reminded me a little bit of the famous Goodfellas scene from uh, the Copacabana where it's like a three minute shot yeah. and you go basically super immersive into it. There's never a cut. And it, and it, it happens in one scene where the camera is literally flowing between rooms. There, there's a, you know, the old technology called wild walls where you basically can c cut through a building and like film different things happening. But you really do feel a part of, in that case, the sort of chaos that's in, that's occurring at that moment yeah. in that scene. Yeah, the, you don't, the, the you don't have you, the hospital scene. You don't have to do it that way. But the fact that you did it, by the way, it's harder. The fact that you did it really is a testament to the craft involved here. And, and it's something maybe not everybody looks at and appreciates, but I saw it and I was like, damn, that's good. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yes. And, and even if they don't recognize just the kind of the artistry of it from a technical perspective, hopefully, like you said, it immerses them into that scene and into the chaos of that moment. Uh, but you're exactly right. That, that the, the, the motif of her drowning is actually based on something that is so inspiring in her life. And if, if, if I don't mind shift, if you don't mind me shifting mm -mm, to that, mm -mm. she, um, you're right. She, when she was small, she had tuberculosis. It compromised her immune system and compromised her lungs. And she got smallpox, almost died. 
Then she fell into a river. And according to her own writings, she drowned. She had already given up her last breath and this was it. And then kind of out of quote unquote nowhere, this farmer was there and reached his hand in and pulled her out of the water. Right. Uh, so this, this was in a woman who faced so much adversity, adversity, the biggest adversity she'd face was this daily specter of death. She was told at seven years old that she only had another year to live. Then she was told at 12 that she only had another year to live. And then she was told repeatedly throughout her life, she had one or two years to live. And without spoiling much, she lived, she overcame all that. And it never, she never let that bring her down. In fact, the opposite, she has a quote, I can either serve my weakness or we can serve our purpose, not both. And she always saw that as an opportunity. If I only have another year, I need to give it my all to make sure I am working to do the the greatest, best possible things in this coming year. Uh, and that was just that was just her internal adversity. On top of that, anti-Italian bigotry, anti-immigrant bigotry, anti-Catholic bigotry, anti-woman bigotry, anti-nun bigotry, uh, you know, institutions against her, her buildings were burned down. It was just thing after, and not to mention even at the time, some of the hierarchy of the church were were against what she was trying to do. Uh, so it was, it's just an incredible underdog story. It it really is. And, you know, look, that, that idea of being told you've got a year to live, I mean, thanks be to God that we should all live that way because tomorrow, the next five minutes aren't guaranteed. You and I could die doing this podcast. Right. You know what I mean? And she lived that way. Of course, she had this sort of outside influence telling her you're going to die. So maybe she had a little bit of help, but we should all kind of look at our life in that way. Amen. As a gift for the moment. And what are we called to do at this exact moment? And that really brings it, you know, when you see that. And, and we know because we can, you know, historically understand she died in her late 60s from, frankly, something that had nothing to do with really any of her sort of earlier traumas, right? I right. think she died from malaria. That's right. And, um, but, but yeah, that, that idea of being at the edge of death, right, the the monks all call it memento mori, right? Remember your death. We should all be thinking that way in a way, not in a gruesome way of like, oh, I'm going to drop dead, but in a way of really valuing, appreciating, and doing the most with the gift of the moment that we've been given by God. I mean, that's really what it's about. Beautiful. And, and by the way, just one of the things that uh, is inspiring from her life, just that one thing. And if, if it was just that, that would be enough. But like you said, there's just so much in this woman's life that's just unbelievable and unknown. One of the central messages of the film, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this, and it comes up, maybe I'm paraphrasing it a little bit, but the idea of starting or beginning a mission and the means coming. Yeah. As there was almost like you have to start it in order for God to provide the means for it, right? The means won't be there proactively. And I, that has to have special meaning to you, a person who if we flash back, you know, 10, 15 years, probably looks at what you're doing today and goes, no way. Yeah. Right. So like, talk a little bit about that central message sure. about the mission and the means will follow. Absolutely. It's, um, yeah, this was always her drive, right? The, the, the thing that would stop her from building an orphanage or a school or a health center or a hospital was always the funds to do it. Right. And especially nuns at the time, you know, there was no obviously social media or, you know, not even telephones, right? So it was a time without technology. How are you going to get the funds in an area that you don't know as an immigrant without hardly ever even speaking the language? It seems impossible. And she never took it as impossibility. She's, it always started with that conviction interiorly. Does God want me to do this or not? And once it was, yes, God wants you to do it, then it's done. She would act as if it is already done and just go full bore to make it happen, right? Um, and that, And that's, you know, that, that's us. You're, you're exactly right. I, I take that to heart, right? When I left 20th Century Fox to try to start this, 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 this company, we only had so much uh, in our savings collectively to last. And then we said, well, we can either, you know, sit back and wait for funds to come, or we could just start writing and start producing as much as we can and then work and pray that these, that these, uh, the means come. And so far they have, um, you know, it's taking long, right? Especially early on in our career from, from Bella to little boy, there was, I don't know, seven or eight years of the wilderness uh, trying to make it happen. But, um, you know, it, 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 it does inspire me to have that 
I wish I had that, that conviction always that she had that you're, if you're on the right path and, and the good Lord is willing to sing, you have to act as if it's done and just mm. go. Mm. Yeah. And for those folks who may not know you, you're a recovering lawyer. I take it. Yes, that's, um, right. that's right. And, yeah. and, and like me, we're sort of on the business side at Fox and other places, kind of, you know, doing the deals effectively of what got a lot of movies and shows made, but you really weren't, at least from what I've read on the creative side of the process. No, not at all. Yeah. I was, I was on the, uh, transactional, what's called business affairs side of things, which is just contracts. And it's not surprising that a lot of people in business affairs then hop over to producing because there's contracts every step of the way and producing you're overseeing the process every step of the way. Right. So you kind of learn production via the contractual elements of it. Um, but yes, I, I fell into the creative side of it. I've always had somewhat a, a creative stand. I would, you know, sit and write stories of my own that no one ever saw, but it wasn't until um, I met Alejandro, our director who came out of the, he's, he's the opposite end. He's, extreme creativity always right <laughs> like everything is a story to him and it's just beautiful but when i met him coming and he was coming out of the university of texas film school he had he had broken the record for winning more awards for his short films than anybody in the history of that school and he was very wow. coveted but he wanted to do the good the true and the beautiful and things that weren't going to be compromising um and so when we got together he his English was very broken at the time. Um, and I grew up a uh, son of Colombian immigrants here. My, you know, so I, I speak Spanish fluently and, and my English is, is, is solid enough. I, you know, to, 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 to get by academically, I had to, to be able to, 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 to be fluent in English as well, obviously. But anyways, uh, he had a first draft of our first film, Bella, and it was written in half English, half Spanish, Alejandro Niz. And so I went in and kind of helped him, translate a few things. And then next thing you know, started tossing him ideas. And he's like, you know, you have something there. And we started writing together and that led to this kind of creative journey. So uh, it's very helpful to be a, a producer who's involved in the creative process at the writing another level, because then, then, you know, you can, you can know with more certainty what the director needs, what his vision is and help provide that for him, which is really the job mm. of, the, of the producer. Well, I didn't think that your stock could rise anymore, but the fact that you mentioned that you're a Colombian does does make that happen because so am I. Is that um, right? That, that, that's, that's right. Yeah, son of Colum first generation American, son of uh, Colombian immigrants. Same here, um, man. From where in Colombia? From my mom is from Cali, and mm. my father was uh, he passed in 2015, but mm, uh, he was from uh, the Zona Cafetera, Anserma Caldas is where he was from, mm. and uh, they came. My dad came over in, in the late 60s, initially to South Florida, then moved to New York, then moved to LA in the 70s. That's where m me and my brother were born, and you know you bring up a really interesting point because in my career. Uh, I've basically dedicated the last 15 years of my media work to uh, promoting and advancing the reality of the sort of Latino potential of the, the entertainment industry and, and frankly, more broadly, the economy. And so here you have, right, a Colombian and two Mexican guys come together and really do, you know, all of this stuff. And I can't not mention that, that you're kind of the embodiment in a way of what I mean of having this sort of bilingual, bicultural experience that's really unique in the United States and that you put it to work against this creative project and it shows, right? So what a great sort of subtext or sub agenda to kind of drive the reality that in the Catholic world, especially in the media apostolate world, anybody who wants to create, that we need to pay attention to the people and the stories that have this sort of lived experience because there's, you know, there's a lot there and obviously, you know, great things can be created as a result of it. Oh, that, uh, I, I got goosebumps, bud. I can't believe that you're a Colombian son of immigrants just like me wound up in, in the media space trying to do kind of similar things. It's just, that's there's, not a, there's not a lot of us. No, Certainly uh, you might be the only one at your level of, uh, of success that I'm aware of, but, uh, but no, it's great. How, how does that, I mean, how does that show up I, just out of curiosity? Like if you, when you look at either projects or how you guys, you know, your, the, the, the work dynamic that you have, or like, what are, what are some things that, that come to mind when you think of like your, your sort of shared Latino kind of perspective? Well, it's very, uh, it might be a bit controversial to many 
Um, oh, good. This, this, this is a this is a show of controversy, my okay, friend. Good, go, we go there. It might be, but uh, it, it isn't in the forefront of any of it. I mean, Alejandro and I, when we speak, we, we speak in English. A lot of the night, we'll speak in English, Spanish. It, it just mixes depending on what we're doing. Yep. Um, but it's you know we're not looking for films that have a particular perspective about. Uh, the immigrant or the immigrant experience or anything like that. We're looking for good stories. If they happen to have that element, then by all means, we just want to make the best possible thing. But as it turns out, particularly with both Sound of Freedom and actually Bella as well, but with Sound of Freedom and Cabrini in particular, you know, the Sound of Freedom was all based in Colombia. So it helps to have that Colombian perspective to know how to portray the Colombian experience, even in the darkest sides of it, in a particular way. And then Cabrini, it's, uh, you know, there, there's she's obviously an immigrant, and she was dealing with this anti-immigrant, anti-Italian sentiment at the time in in uh, New York, where these millions of poor Italians were crammed into these tenements in Lower Manhattan. Um, so I think it, it, it helps that Alejandro, particularly, who is an immigrant himself, not the son of immigrants like me and you, but he's an immigrant, to have that perspective, to be able to give it a little touch of subtexture of reality. A hundred percent. I just gave a talk this last weekend at the Religious Education Congress here in Anaheim. For those who don't know, it's like the biggest, one of the biggest uh, religious conferences in, in, in the country. And my talk, um, which I've given before, it was the first, it's called Awakening the Sleeping Giant. And it it relates to the sort of demographic reality of what's going on in the United States, in the church specifically. Um, but it's the first time I'd ever given that talk in Spanish to a Latino audience. I'd nice. never given that talk in Spanish. And one of the points in it is um, kind of bringing to light the reality of the fact that we're all called, just like Cabrini was, to a time and a place for a reason, right? It's not an accident that we're, you know, in 2024 living in LA as an example. Like that's something that either God willed directly in his perfect will or he allowed in his permissive will, but either way, we're here for a reason. And as it happens in the United States right now in, in the US, 42% of the church is Hispanic. And if you look at Catholics under 18, 65% of them are Hispanic. And so this idea of, of, you know, which Archbishop here in Los Angeles really highlights perfectly when he says that the Latino community in the U.S. are the spiritual heirs of St. Juan Diego, and that that carries with it a mantle of responsibility to, to kind of burst forth from that and to, you know, mission to not just the Latino community, but everybody, but, you know, but, but that we have a particular responsibility because we have that kind of um, heritage and that patronage. And so it was a little bit of a, of a, you know, gauntlet throw this talk to kind of get the Latino community really motivated to go out and, and mission to the whole country, to the whole world, because we need it. You know, the church stats aren't very strong right now, which is, you know, something I hope your film helps, mm -hmm. which I'm sure it will. But, but, you know, so it isn't necessarily about touching on the themes to your point, but it's really about rallying the people um, you, you know, and so when I see you guys do this kind of stuff, um, I, I'm just, I'm inspired by it, but I'm also very hopeful that a young Hispanic kid might look at this and say, you know what, I can live my faith and I can be a pro and I can create great art and I can do it all, you know, here in the U S and for the benefit of the church. Like, I mean, it's, it's such a strong reference model. I don't want you to minimize how important that is to a lot of kids who just don't have that reference model to look at. Like yeah. you just don't. Yeah. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. And uh, you know, it, it, it does bear a big responsibility. One note is I, I was surprised. I don't know why I should have been surprised, but I was surprised that 39% uh, of the theatrical audience for sound of freedom was Latino. So it's uh, it, you're, you're exactly right. It's a massive market. It wasn't like we were particularly uh, marketing to that market. It just so happens that it's part of the American experience, right? Well, there you um, go. Yeah. For me, I've been, um, my brother and I grew up in South San Gabriel, which is a very kind of violent uh, Latino gang area, right? Very, very poor. Um, and, you know, I've been asked before, you know, what was it like? We, we, we wound up going to a high school that was, that was uh, not predominantly Hispanic. Um, and, you know, what, what was that experiencing like? You know, did you, did you experience racism and, uh, or, or anti-Hispanic, anti-Latino sentiment? And surprisingly, the answer was no. 
I can't say that I ever did. I can't say that. I mean, there was one time that uh, my brother was confused, uh, who, by the way, went to Harvard. He's a really smart kid. My brother was confused in college for a janitor, <laughs> but it was reasonable because he was right. dressed really, you know, he was dressed in like overalls and he had a He was wearing dickies. Dickies yeah. and a broom, you know? So yes, um, it would make sense. Sure, sure. You know, so we were never offended by it, but we didn't. And so we're, we're testaments to the opposite of it. I think what many might say, and, and given, by the way, we we're in a heavily Latino area that was heavily poor and then managed transition into areas like Harvard or, you know, different businesses where- Or Hollywood. Or, or Hollywood, yeah. where purportedly you're going to face some of this, you know, anti elective We never did. We can't yeah. say that we did. All, yeah. all, all we see is this incredible, beautiful land of opportunity where a kid from the barrio can, can do something with his life, good and beautiful, you know? Which is awesome. It's the right attitude to have. I mean, I see the same thing for myself. I, I, you know, in the in the media world, I spent a lot of time at Disney and a lot of time at Univision as examples, and then in the startup space. And I can't say that I that I walked into a lot of um, overt examples of um, you know stereotyping or racism, but I did run into the lack of uh, reference models. Right. So. I mean, even you, right? How many other Colombian American successful movie execs can you name? Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I can name you, yeah. okay? But beyond you, I don't know. So it, you know, so the, so the the inability to see other folks who are doing it and learn from what they've done, and just kind of that little boost that you get by, like, oh yeah, I could probably do that too. That's something that's not a, a kind of direct thing, but is something that lacks and perhaps it would help if it if it existed. And then, you know, the other way perhaps is like I've always contrasted racism because I I was born in LA, but we moved to Mexico City, then to Argentina, then to Venezuela, then to Korea. Like we moved all over the place. Mm. And I went to high school in Florida, right? In like South Florida in a very kind of um blue collar <laughs> part mm. of South Florida. But like when you would run into some kid who would call you, you know, a name which I don't recall until I moved to Florida. But, you know, if he called you a name, you'd like, you know, you'd fight it out and then you'd end up hugging. You know what I mean? And it was fine. Now it seems like a lot of this stuff is is sort of, um, you know, sort of either unspoken or it's spoken just online or it's people who think that you need some special treatment or whatever. It just seems so warped relative to what whatever I experienced, which was very direct and like very fast. You know, somebody... Yeah, like I remember one time in, on a school bus, some kid called me a spick. It was the first time I'd ever heard that word. And I was like, I had to ask my friend what it meant. I didn't even know. And like, we got into it afterwards, a little pushing match, whatever. But then afterwards, I ended up being friends with the kid, right? So it was like, it, it was over really quickly, um, where now it's like, it's a different kind of thing. I don't even know exactly how to describe it, but... Um, oh, I get you. It's a wound that somehow stays with you and scars and what, how much of that is self-fulfilling? I don't know. But for me, it wasn't, maybe it was the nature of the fact that we're Colombian, which is such a very particular thing to be in yeah. the United States, that there wasn't a lot of role models that were Colombian. So I wasn't looking for that. I wasn't looking for role models that, that had my exact background or, you know, whatever. I was just like, is someone doing that? I want to do that. I don't care who they are or what they are or what color they are or whatever. Let's try to do that thing because that thing is cool and just gauge it on the on, on more objective criteria than a subjective thing. But if our example can help inspire someone, then God bless. Were, it, you know? Did your did your parents come from the business or related to it at all? Oh no, no, not in the slightest. No, my parents were from Barranquilla, Colombia. Uh, my dad worked a graveyard shift at a mailroom for nineteen years, and my mom was home with us. Um, so yeah, it was. Uh, as far That's away, crazy. even now yeah. they don't, they don't quite understand what I do. <laughs> I don't think many people do a uh, producer. What do you do? You know? Yeah. That's funny. My dad started in the mailroom as well. Started in the mailroom of, of bank of America here in Los Angeles. And he went to city college, you know, got educated and then uh, ended up getting promoted a couple times and ultimately ran the Latin American and Caribbean part of that bank, which is no why way. I grew up all over the place. Yeah. Amazing. But it was, it was a mailroom start. I mean, that's, funny, even more uh, synchronicity there in our, in our stories. Um, what, what would you say, Leo, is like what you want to happen as a result of this film? Like, what do you want, what do you want to happen? What do you want people to do with this? I want uh, St. Mother Cabrini to be known. We want to shine a light on her life so that her light shines life and, and everyone else's life and inspires them to, to, 
there was a great, there was a review that just came out a couple of days ago that said, at the end of this film, you might be inspired to try to do something good for someone else. Yeah. And if, we I could, felt. if we could do that, well then, boy, there's nothing else. And, you know, we don't share this very often and, you know, to try to keep it in, in the realm of humility and to, you're not supposed to let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. I don't mind sharing to your audience that this film is a non, is a nonprofit. The whole thing was done as a charity. It's one of the reasons that I signed on board because I thought, boy, it's a big box office risk to make a film that's a period piece about a nun that no one knows. Uh, and the way we did it is all of the proceeds of the film, none of the directors, producers, none of the actors, even these big names, none of them are getting any, uh, any uh, revenues off of the film. It's all going to charitable causes um, that are true to, to Mother Cabrini's heart, you know, the poor, the orphan, that sort of thing. So I've got, I know you've got to, you've got to cut loose here in, in a few minutes, but I wanted to just cover two quick last things for you um, or with you. One of them, and I, and I, and I have to give credit to, uh, to the reviewer here, which is, um, let's see, John Smirak wrote a piece in Chronicles. I don't know if you've read it called, have. The, you have? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The gorgeous new movie Cabrini will break your heart. And when you when I first read that headline, I was like, "Oh, it's this is before I saw the the, the screener." I was like, "You know, this is going to be emotive in a way that breaks your heart." But his point in the article was the stark contrast between the time of Cabrini and this idea of the church, you know, providing for the means of the homeless, the immigrant, and this this like story of real grit and entrepreneurialism and determination in a way seems so foreign to his experience of the church today that seems in some respects to become kind of like an NGO or just some other actor in like a sea of people who provide resources, right? At least that's how I read it. And there's, there's a lot there that I agree with um, in that contrast that <clears throat> the life of Mother Cabrini in your film kind of creates with the world. So for me, it's almost like a clarion call to, if not return, to at least be inspired by what's possible by, yes, religious and clergy, but also by the laity and what, what like our responsibility is. I mean, what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you make of that? What do you make yeah. of that review even? I, I think it's wonderful. I think it's spot on. And, and you're right, it is, it is in a certain sense sad. Um, and I think it might be because the, the immigrant is now confused with immigration. Mm. Uh, immigration is its own thing and of course there's you know policies that are reasonable and policies are unreasonable and you know border walls and whatnot that all make sense and the things that don't make sense and whatever else Brini wasn't interested in any of that she wasn't interested in immigration she was interested in the immigrant she was interested in the dignity of of the person and whether they were the immigrant or not it just happened to be that she was dropped in an area in new york where there was this this issue of of the immigrant she built hospitals she said for everyone because at the time, there was hospitals where Italians couldn't go to, uh, or other hospitals where Irish couldn't go to. She said, I want to build a hospital for everyone. And that was her perspective, was to give everybody their dignity because we all share in a common humanity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think she's the sort of person where it's raining, as you know, right now in, 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 in uh, Southern California. And if she was driving by and there was a family that was out in the rain, she wouldn't just stop and, you know, maybe give them some money. She would make sure that they had a place to be. That's just, that was in her DNA. That was in her structure. And uh, I think we can all learn a little bit from that. No, she could, she entered into relationship with them. And I think ultimately that's what the gospel is about, right? It's not just about a transaction. And so the criticism that this particular reviewer has of the church being maybe more transactionally oriented, I think to the extent that it's true is a fair criticism. And I think that we have to, um, you know, really see this film and, and, and other things, but this film in particular, since we're talking about it as an opportunity to sort of really focus on what is the driver, you know, is the dignity of the human person and wanting to enter into more than a transaction with them to make ourselves feel better, but to really realize that there's a human being there and that we have a responsibility to them. But um, all right, my final point, and this is my only nit to pick, but I wanted to kind of throw it out at, at let's you. Let's go, let's go. Did you ever consider calling the film Empire of Hope? We did. We actually tested uh, the, all these different titles. Empire of Hope was one of them, um, which is a great idea. And it, it tested amongst general audiences way lower than Cabrini, which, mm. is, cra which is crazy. Um, 
So I don't know, maybe it was a, 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 an association with Empire of the Sun or something like that. But yes, she, to, uh, to kind of give a little bit of a spoiler to your audiences, that was her drive to build an empire of hope. That's what she said. That was a quote from Mother Cabrini. And um, in her life, she wound up building more orphanages, hospitals, help centers, and schools than both the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts combined. Yikes. She was a wow. force of nature, um, an inspiration to so many, not the least of which was a nun who was at her canon in Sage in 1946. And a couple of months later, she was part of this order called the Loretto Nuns, who were teaching uh, nuns. She, a couple months later, inspired by Mother Cabrini, she left her order, started an order of missionaries, mm-hmm. and then changed the world. That nun is, of course, Mother Teresa. So um, she she was inspired entirely to model herself after Mother Cabrini. Well, many, many years ago, I got a chance to visit her uh, Mother Cabrini's shrine um, in New York. And uh, the shrine was actually closed that day, but we prevailed upon a religious sister who was like looking after the place to let us in and let us, you know, um, just kneel and in reverence by her uh, her body, which is, you know, a lot of people claim is incorruptible. Um, and uh, I didn't know anything about her. This is 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but now what a privilege um, to be speaking to somebody who was involved uh, and played a principal role in the creation of this particular film to really bring awareness of this great woman to a lot of places and to benefit from her by her intercession because we definitely need it. It's a It's a real... It's a real hero story in the right in the right way, um, and it, it does you know address this sort of need to be bold or 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 die or pass away you know which she almost says verbatim at the end of the film, and 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 what a privilege to have you come and, and share a little bit about it. Before you leave, Leo, just t- tell us how we can. Obviously, the movie comes out on March eighth. It's going to be everywhere, right, nationwide. It is. Well, first of all. Deacon, the privilege is mine. Thank you so much for your good work. And thank you so much for having me and your support. Uh, it's just wonderful. And we have to get together and have a Colombian coffee one of these days soon. Anytime, you know? anytime, my friend. The film will be out in theaters nationwide. Thanks to the success of Sound of Freedom, we're able to get it at least to launch nationally. But we're going to need everyone's help. Again, we're not, uh, you know, Disney or Sony. And we're competing with some giants, Dune and Kung Fu Panda and a bunch of other big films. And again, the goal is to get this this great saint known, right? The first American saint to be known worldwide. Uh, so if people can please help by purchasing tickets at angel.com slash Cabrini, the, uh, the, uh, they have an incredible technological system now where you can buy tickets in your theater, in your town through the angel website. And if on the day, an hour before the screening, you decide you want to change your time or change your theater, you can do that. So hopefully it's uh, it's, it's, it's low risk, but I think the bigger risk, especially for Catholics, is to not support films that are trying to do something so Amen. Uh, beautiful. Amen. Well, look, our prayers, the ex- my prayer, the, the prayers of this audience by extension are for the great prosperity of this film and your work and your continued collaborations with, uh, with your partners, Alejandro and Eduardo and everybody else who's behind the making of this great, uh, you know, great content, great stories. Stories can, they have changed the world. They can continue to do that. And we need to uh, to get the, the word out there when we see good ones and make sure that everybody comes into contact with them. Great privilege to have you on the show, Leo. Uh, God bless you and all of your work and um, and just a great, great, uh, great joy to have you here. Likewise. Thank you. God bless you. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.